To introduce our guest speaker, I am going to invite up Mr. Simon Brace, and uh, he is going to introduce today's speaker. And, and again, on behalf of Community Baptist Church, uh, for team, Simon, you guys, solid every year. Appreciate so much what you all do. You know you're an extension of this family, and uh, look forward. Mark your calendars, church people. All right? Next year, same time, same back channel. Right back here, end of September. Brother Simon, please come. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. And uh, like I said to you, it's uh, uh, for some of you, you've uh, had to uh, bear with uh, dealing with me for the weekend. Hopefully, uh, you've all survived that. But uh, thank you very much to to, to uh, Community Baptist Church for their tremendous um, support. Um, uh, not only do we get a chance to serve you, which is our privilege, but uh, you help us. We, we've got to train young men and women uh, to speak and to teach. And so some of the people who uh, come to uh, this event are part of the training program we have. So we're grateful for the opportunity to train our people. Uh, unfortunately, some of our chaps aren't too handsome. Uh, most of our guys are pretty ugly. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, there's no amount of Botox that can fix uh, Donald Sanchez. He's just stuck with what he's got. But really, no, it's, it's, it's really a real privilege for us to come here, to serve this church. And you know, it's really inspiring for us as well to see how faithful and consistent you are with doing this. This is a rare church. There's not many churches in the country that are doing this, that are looking at the culture, diagnosing the problems, and then not just turning around and moving off, thinking, gee, we've got to, we've got to find out how we can deal with it. Maybe other churches aren't taking the, the time to do this, but we're not going to be culpable of, of being found wanting in front of the Lord. So I really commend you for your perseverance in this. The kind of thing you do at apologetics conferences is not what you have typically in churches. Why? Because you have to think. You have to use your mind. You have to work hard. And that's not what the church is interested in doing nowadays. They like to be lazy and they like to be slothful with their minds. And that's one of the chief reasons why we are losing the cultures. We don't know how our ideas, the greatest ideas, intersect with the culture and how to argue and contend for them. Now before I get off on a sermon here as well, I actually have to take the time to just say thank you to the, the Harrisons for uh, hosting us. They've become like my American grandparents. Yeah, we come out and hang with them. Uh, last night we had a wonderful, we were up to 2 o'clock in the morning playing video games. And... Uh, <laughs> Harrison had to uh, go to um, the, uh, the Junior Miss, and rumor has it he nearly won that event. Uh, <coughs> it, it was only the dancing routine that let him down, you see. But uh, we have had a wonderful time with them, and um, they really have become part of our family, and we pray for them, and uh, we love them, and it's been a real privilege to come and stay here with them. Um, so thank you once again. We cannot thank you enough. We're looking forward to the service. Uh, this morning we have a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, a, a former professor of mine as well, and one of my very first friends when I came to this great country was Ted Wright. In fact, the very first weekend I was here in the United States, I, I ended up, you know, first church I came to, I didn't know what to do after church because everybody goes back to their families, and so I was just this, this foreigner by myself, and Ted said, hey, come with us, and we went and had lunch, and I remember he took me to the Air Force Museum at the, near the Charlotte Airport. That was my very first weekend, was this man came up and said, hey, come, come out with us. And so um, I've known Ted for a number of years. 
He is a man who is passionate about the Word of God. He's so passionate about it, he goes and digs in the ground in the Middle East to find stuff about the Bible. Okay? So he's a, he's a, he's a Christian Indiana Jones. Okay? And uh, he has uh, been a good friend. Uh, he is uh, involved in uh, a great ministry called Cross Examined. They have a table out the back there with some of the very good, uh, best uh, introductory uh, resources on apologetics. If you want to get started, and what's this all about? Uh, there's a table inside the, the, the auditorium there, and Ted can tell you all about that. Or you can ask uh, Donald or Steve or Diana or Nell, and we can, we can give you recommendations. Get our emails. Send us emails. We're happy to share this information with you. There is no copyright on this material. It's just truth. And we all need to know how to handle it and, and, and dispense it in the culture in which we live. Ted is a professor at uh, two seminaries, at SES and also at New Life Seminary. He travels around the country and speaks. He's also done a number of international trips. I've worked with him in Norway. He was in Europe this year recently. He works with Frank Turek. And they do high-level academic stuff at universities. But they do a lot of work in the local church. And so it's my real privilege to introduce uh, my very good friend this morning, uh, Ted Wright. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. I'll give you that 20 bucks later, brother. Thank you so much. And it's such a joy to be here. And I know what you're thinking right now. Who in the world is this guy with a bow tie? He's going to bore our brains out. You know, anybody with a bow tie can't be interesting, right? You know, I promise I'm not with the Nation of Islam. I am a Christian, you know. But it is a great joy to be with here, you here this morning. And um, where did my clicker go? There it is. All right. Um, but I want to talk to you about a problem that it's facing the church in America. And it's a big problem. And uh, what I want to report to you this morning is that it's not, just, it's not just big cities that have this problem. This is a problem in churches around America and around the world. And uh, it's often called the youth exodus problem. The youth exodus problem. 75% of young people will walk away from the Christian faith. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that is the case, and people can argue and debate over why that's the case. Just think about that for a second. 75% of your youth, according to the stats, when they leave this church to go to college, they will not come back. Is that acceptable to you? Is that unacceptable? That's unacceptable, I think. And in the nation, in the United States alone, this number goes up and down. It fluctuates between 75 to 80 percent of young people are walking away from the faith. In fact, uh, last year I saw an updated research on this from George Barna, and one of the largest groups, uh, demographics that's growing in America is the demographic of young people who are checking the box, no religion or atheism. No religion or atheism. Uh, at Cross-Examine, where I work, we, have, we are also partners with another ministry in California called Stand to Reason. How many of you have ever heard of Stand to Reason? Greg Kokel, uh, Stand to Reason, two people. All right, very good. Um, they're great guys, but one of my friends at Stand to Reason is named Brett Kunkel. And uh, Brett uh, does a lot of speaking in colleges, and he does a lot of youth speaking. And he has a great way of putting things. Brett says it this way. He says that a lot of young people... They rent their parents' faith. They rent it. They don't own it. So my question to you, young people in here this morning, whether you are in high school or junior high or elementary school or in college, my question to you is this. Do you own your faith? Is it your faith? Is it, do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 
do you really believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Because that's the question. It's not, well, my mom and dad are Christians or whatever. Do you really believe that Christ is the Son of God? And my question to parents is this. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Moms and dads, and no grandparents, you don't get off either. And no aunts and uncles, you don't get off either. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Because here's the basic principle, guys. Listen to this. You can't give what you don't have. If you don't understand why Christianity is true, mom and dad, then guess what? You can't rely. Hopefully, you've got a great youth pastor who understands the importance of apologetics. But if you don't understand why Christianity is true, and you don't know the reasons why, then you can't give this to your son or daughter. Does that make sense? And that hits me as well. I'm, I'm, I'm included in that group as well. I have a 13-year-old, so I know exactly the boat that you're in. Add to that peer pressure. There are two pressures in college. One is intellectual, and the other one is through peer pressure, through basically freedom. You, your child now has freedom. They're now not, you're not living with mom and dad, and now there's a cute guy or a cute girl, and there's all kinds of pressures, as you well know, in college. So you add to that this volatile mix of intellectual skepticism by their professors and the freedom to do what they want to do, and that sort of makes a mix. And unless your child owns their faith, unless it's their faith, then it's very highly likely that they will begin to question whether or not Christianity is true. Now, it's, now we could talk all about this one particular issue. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. I don't know if you know who Tim Keller is. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book. Uh, several books on apologetics and God's existence, and he's a pastor up in New York. And I like, this may sound controversial, but, I, but I hopefully you'll understand where I'm, where I'm going to go with this. He says, oftentimes people will come up to me and they'll say, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, I don't know if there's a God anymore. I don't, I don't know if the Bible's true anymore. You know the first question he asks them? Who are you sleeping with? Does that make sense? You see, a lot of people will begin to question whether or not Christianity is true, and they really want to live the lifestyle they want to live. That's really the, that's really the elephant in the room, isn't it? That people want to live the way they want to live. And the real issue isn't evidence, even though there's good evidence, and we're going to talk about evidence and apologetics. The real evidence is really, I want to live the way that I want to live. And that's the way a lot of people are in the world today. Really, the issue is the will. The issue is the heart. The heart is in rebellion against God. It's not that they're, they're not enamored with these evidences that we present, and there's good evidences. The evidence just shows they have no excuse. The real issue, the real elephant in the room, is sexual freedom. That's really the elephant in the room. It really is. Uh, and Frank and I speak around the country. We go to college campuses, and I've interacted with a lot of college students, and we talk to campus ministers, and Frank is... We compare notes... And this is exactly what Frank says. And Frank speaks more, he, he speaks, he's gone like 95% of the, the, of the year speaking around the country. And my schedule is picking up as well. But Frank and I compare notes, and this is exactly what the issues that college students are dealing with in the college. But that's not what I'm here to talk to you about this morning. I'm here to talk to you about this intellectual issue. One in four professors is atheist or agnostic. When your child will go to college, one in four, and I would probably say that number may, may even be higher, more than half professors have unfavorable feelings toward evangelicals. More than half have unfavorable feelings. Six percent of professors say the Bible is the actual word of God. 
6%. So when your young person goes to college and they have a class in literature or English or history or whatever, 6% of professors believe the Bible's Word of God. So you know what they're going to get when they go to college. And 51% of professors say the Bible is an ancient book of fables. And I think that's actually being a little nice. It's probably higher than that. You know, it's probably a lot more. The majority of them believe that. So here are a couple of quotes here. This is from Daniel Dennett. Uh, just, just, just to let you know kind of what they're going into when they go to college. They will see me as just another liberal professor. And he says that is exactly what I am. He says, uh, well, somebody says, that's uh, at the bottom he says that. He says, trying to conjole them out of their convictions. And they're dead right about that. That's what I am and that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Richard Rorty, University of Virginia, says this. We try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. This is what professors and universities are saying. This is what they are wanting to do to our uh, students. He says, so we're going to go right along trying to discredit you. They're going to try to discredit you and this church in, in, the, in the eyes of their uh, 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 children, uh, trying to strip your fundamentalist, they call us fundamentalist, religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. So uh, just, uh, just a few nice quotes there. This is from Steven Weinberg at the University of Texas, who also won the Nobel Prize in physics a few years ago. And he says, I personally feel that the teaching of modern science is corrosive of religious belief, and I'm all for that. If scientists can destroy the influence of religion on young people, I think it may be the most important contribution we can make. Destroy the religious conviction of young people is the most important contribution that this Nobel Prize winning scientist says science can make. And then, of course, he got Bart Ehrman. You guys know who Bart Ehrman is? He at UNC Chapel Hill. There are few things more dangerous than, he says, inbred religious certainty. So if you're certain and you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, he says that is the most dangerous thing around. You know, it's interesting, they never really apply that to radical Muslims, do they? It's always to Christians. You know, essentially these liberals never apply their theories to the people who are actually going and beheading and killing and raping people, but it's the Christians. Gee, I wonder why that is. Could it be possibly that the spiritual forces behind them are on the same side? Just something to think about. Read Ephesians, read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and following, and I think you'll see some insight into that. Um, Miriam Cook says this, Islamic feminist, now that in itself is like, a, is like, what does that even mean? Is that an oxymoron? I don't know what that means. Islamic feminist? Uh, I think just for that statement alone, she needs to have her head examined. Islamic feminists are declaring that, yes, Islam is the ideal just society. What? Uh, get, folks, get ready. This is going to be, you're going to see more of this coming, coming in the universities in America and in Europe, probably already in Europe. It's already in America as well. It's, here she is. Um, she says, uh, Islamic feminists confront any who threaten their, their local or Islamic or local community, whether they be organizations or individual men or Christian or Jewish or secular women. Uh, and I believe she may be at Georgetown. I'm not exactly sure what university she's in. Here's James Tabor. He is at UNC Charlotte. He's an archaeologist, and I've met Dr. Tabor. Tabor says this. He's the chairman of religious studies at UNC Charlotte, his book challenges the, many of the beliefs that Christians hold dear, maintaining that Jesus 
is neither the son of God nor the son of Joseph, but very likely the, the child of a Roman soldier named Pantera. Basically, a Roman soldier probably raped Mary, and Jesus is probably the illegitimate bastard child of a Roman soldier. That's what, this is what professors are teaching in universities to our children. You see, do you sort of see the need for apologetics, folks? Do you sort of see the need why we need to study this stuff? Why we need to prepare our young people to defend their faith and know why they believe what they believe, that it's true? It's not just because we say, well, you just need to believe it. Well, that's what we've always believed. Listen, folks, that just ain't going to cut it anymore. That is not going to cut it. We've got to train them for war. This is warfare. This is spiritual warfare. And the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God and truth. Truth and the Word of God go hand in hand because they are one and the same. So, here's a couple other quotes. This is uh, from Charles Potter who wrote, Humanism, a new religion. Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. Every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday school meetings for half an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Folks, that's, that's throwing down the gauntlet. That's, lo- that's saying, you know what, what can you do in your Sunday schools to prepare your young people for what they're going to face in colleges? What can you do with your Sunday school? That's basically what he's saying. Folks, this ought to be a center for training, this church. And I thank the Lord for Pastor Jeremy and what he is doing here in this apologetics conference. And let me say the one other thing. I just got here last night at 11 o'clock. This church should have been packed out yesterday and the day before. That lets me know what some of you think about apologetics. You don't think it's very important. But folks, if you care about what's happening in America, you better care about apologetics. Because the time is now. It's not, let's wait later. The time to prepare is now. The hour is late. People need the gospel. They need the truth. And the church needs to wake up and smell the coffee. Literally and figuratively, because coffee's good. All right. I'm off my soapbox now. University of Michigan. You tell I'm a little bit passionate about this. I think we ought to be. I think the problem is we're not passionate enough. I think we're just kind of so, yeah, well, look at all the horrible things happening. Yeah, do something about it. Prepare. You know, get engaged in the culture. University of Michigan, here are some of the things that the classes and courses that will be taught. Homosexual indoctrination. This has been going on for years, folks. This is not, this is not anything new. I'm, not, I'm just letting you know what's going on. Uh, how to be gay, male homosexuality and initiation. That's a course at the University of Michigan. Uh, UCLA. Queering of American history, Chicana, uh, Chicana lesbian literature, speaking out, public speaking on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender issues, uh, Wesleyan University, queering the American state, politics and sex after 1968, University of Texas at Austin, the family, indoctrination of the idea that homosexual parenting is just as good as mom and dad. So not only is it going on in the universities, this kind of ideology is going on in our culture, in our television programs. Uh, New shows like Modern Family, you know, hello, if some of you watch this stuff, you know, uh, this is all indoctrination, and it's going on in the universities as well. Jennifer Keaton was expelled from Augusta State, Georgia, uh, from counseling program for biblical uh, natural law abuse because she refused to admit to a homosexual remediation plan. She's basically in school to learn how to be a counselor, 
and she believed that homosexuality was wrong, and so they told her, listen, you've got to teach this, and you've got to agree with us, and she did not do this. She said, okay, we'll let you continue on in the course, but you've got to take a homosexual remediation class. She refused, and she was expelled from college because she refused to go along with their ideology. Julia Ward was expelled from ENU counseling program because she wouldn't affirm a client's homosexual behavior, but would instead refer to such clients to other counselors. So, uh, of course, the, the liberals are all very tolerant, right? Not, no, they're not. They're not tolerant at all. Um, so, the impact on our youth. Julia, pastor's daughter, became an agnostic while at UNC Chapel Hill. A pastor's daughter became an agnostic at Chapel Hill. Folks, this can happen here, now. This can happen where we are. Steve, a famous son, a son of a famous Christian, renounced biblical morality at Elon College. Is that in South Carolina? Elon? That's here, Elon. Okay, What's, what city is that in? Burlington. Very good. That's, in, that's right here in, in Carolina. John, a high school worker for Campus Crusade, became an atheist after reading Richard Dawkins' book on atheism. So it is, it is in the church. Don't think that it's, it can't happen here. We go to churches, little small town American churches in the South. I can't tell you how many people. You know, Ted, I've had, I know somebody who walked. We, they grew up in this youth group. And now they're an atheist. Now they're a homosexual. They're living a homosexual lifestyle. So it's here. And the reason why this is important is because truth is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Who's paying for all this? The taxpayer. We are. We pay for this. That's why you, suppose, you think... Well, Christians shouldn't be getting involved in politics. Listen, if we don't get involved in politics, stuff like this will continue to happen. We need to vote for people who will not put up with this kind of garbage, which is exactly what it is. Well, there's a few other words I'd like to use, but I can't this morning because of this sacred desk here and where I am. The air in Babylon. The air in Babylon. Postmodernism, relativism, atheism, materialism, and anti-supernaturalism. This is the air that our young people are breathing. The philosophies and the ideologies that are in the colleges, in the universities, in the culture. And a lot of times, we also breathe these in as well uh, as people just living in America, in biblical criticism. Abraham Lincoln said this, a very scary quote, The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. Let that sink in for a second. It's pretty scary, isn't it? Pretty scary. Unless the young people are grounded in the truth, and they know why it's the truth, most of them will reject God's word, they'll reject God's purpose, and they'll reject God's morality. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I love this psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms. And um, I want to show you three vital apologetic questions that you need to know how to answer. And uh, you have heard from some great, great speakers this past weekend. Uh, and they, I'm sure, have given you some information about some of, this, some of these questions. But first, let's look at God's Word and what God's Word says. This is a Psalm of David. And I love this. I love the Psalms anyway. And I especially love the Psalms of David. This past summer, uh, I was in the uh, Dead Sea area near En Gedi. Went to En Gedi, where David went, and I went to the Judean wilderness. Went hiking in the mountains, in the in the desert. Beautiful. I, I don't know. I'm a I'm a southern boy, but I love the desert. It's a beautiful place. And I went to some of the same places that David went, and it just it's just amazing to be there to think, wow, King David was here, you know, three thousand years ago, 
and I can see how he wrote the Psalms. And so I'm sure that David, as a shepherd, late one night was tending his sheep, and I'm sure he looked up at the stars. And this is, I think, probably inspired from his, from his time as a shepherd. In the first six verses, he gives us truth about God's existence. And he says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the, end, uh, to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. Okay? There is a break. I want you to notice there's a break in these first six verses. And what, what uh, David is writing about is God's glory revealed from heaven. And I want to tell you about two basic parts of Revelation. Revelation is God revealing to us truth about Himself. And there are two avenues of revelation. There are two very, this is a very important theological principle that you should know as a Christian. This is not seminary. This is not egghead seminary thing. This is what you just should know as a Christian. There are two primary avenues of God's revelation. One is called general revelation. The revelation that God reveals about Himself from creation. And he writes about this in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And he says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but I believe that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 is echoing what David is saying in Psalm 19. Well, what is Paul saying in Romans chapter 1? Beginning in verse 18 says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness... Because uh, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been revealed from the things that have been created, so that men are without excuse. No one can say, well, I don't know there's a God. Because according to David in Psalm 19, and according to Paul in Romans 1, everyone can know that there is a God. So the first apologetic question is this. Is there a God? It's fundamental. We could, we, could, we could go back and ask the question, is there such thing as absolute truth? But I'm not going to do that because I think we all believe and agree that truth is absolute. But the most fundamental question of all is this. This is what the question of atheism is an important question, whether or not there's a God. So the Bible says that there is a way we can know that God exists. Now, here's the thing. Just because you know that there's a God, does that mean you're going to be saved? Just because you know that there is a God? No. I mean... You may go from atheist to theist, but that doesn't mean you're going to have eternal life. It just means that you are qualified to be a demon because demons believe and tremble. Demons know there's a God. The difference is belief that and belief in. So there's evidence scientifically and there's evidence philosophically and there's evidence in the heavens. You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a scientist. You can be a farmer, a mechanic, a plumber, a painter, uh, a carpenter, whatever, everybody can know that there is a God who created the world. Because as Paul says in Romans 1, they are without excuse. 
There is no place, he goes on to say this in, uh, in, uh, in Psalm 19, he says there's no place where their voice is not heard. There's nowhere on earth, no, you, can go, you can't go anywhere in the world where people can say, well, uh, there's no evidence for God's existence around here. No, there's no place because the sky is everywhere. People can look at the stars and see that there's a God. So that's number one, general revelation. Okay, that's true. That's God's existence. The second one begins in verse 7. And this is what we call special revelation. This is, this is specific revelation that God gives to tell us how to be saved, how to have a proper relationship with Jesus. Okay, and it begins in verse 7. And the first verse is the most important verse. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and all righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and than the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and then I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So, the thing to remember is this. Here's, let, me, let me just cut to the chase because of time here. And let me just give you the three most important apologetic questions based on this passage here and passages in the Gospels. Here they are. Does God exist? Is the Bible reliable? Can we trust it? And is Jesus who He said He was? Who, or, or we can put it this way. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Okay, so let's go through these very quickly. What evidence do we have that God exists? And I'm, gonna, I'm preaching the sermon, but I'm going to ask you, those of you who have been here the past couple of days, what is some evidence for God's existence? And don't just tell me because the Bible says so. That's good, but we're talking about, what if an atheist, what if, what if you have someone who doesn't believe this is the Bible, this is the Word of God, what are you going to say to them? Okay, give me, some, give me some scientific or philosophical or some kind of argument some kind of case for God's existence. What's, what is something that points to God, that He exists? It's anybody. Don't be scared. I won't, I won't be mean. <laughs> creation. creation. All right. What specifically about creation? Is there, are there any particular features about creation? What about it? It's orderly. It's orderly. Well, maybe that was by chance. Can we dig a little further into that? What about life? Very good. Yes. Thermodynamics, that's a big word. You th- notice you throw a big word there, thermodynamics. Ooh, give, that, give them a round of applause. Very good. That's great. That's exactly right because that, that is a law. And see, you see what we're doing here? We're using, we're using things that unsaved people will recognize. You know, it's really the bottom line about this apologetics thing is it's really about the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might gain some. To the Jews, I become like a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To the Greeks, I become like the Greeks, that I might win the Greeks. Are we willing 
to understand how lost people think in order that we might reach them? That's the question. Are we willing to learn words like thermodynamics that we might reach someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? I, I, listen, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up, I'm from Mississippi, so you can't get any further south than, than where I'm from. South Africa. South Africa. Uh, he beats me. He beats me. Usually I'm the only one, but Simon beats I'll give it to you, brother. From the deep south. From the deep south, yeah. But you're not from Cape Town, though. Yeah, yeah. That's from Nelson. You from Cape Town? All right. So I know how it is, but growing up in the South, let me, let me just say, a lot of what I've observed in my, I don't know how many years I've been in full-time ministry in the South, you know, you know the way we do evangelism in Southern Baptist churches in the South? We fish in other ponds. Brother Jeremy, that is absolute truth. I've seen that in Union County where I've ministered for seven years at a local Baptist church. I've been in Mississippi churches. A lot of the way we do evangelism, the way we reach out to people, is we invite, we have gospel singings. That's great to have a gospel singing. But folks, you know who's going to come to a gospel singing? Save people. What about unsaved people? You know what? I, I saw a gospel singing. Tri- I want to come here a gospel sermon. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm going to get saved. They're not going to come to a gospel concert. They're, they're at Starbucks. They're at the bar. Where did Jesus go? You know what's interesting? When Jesus was alive... You know the people attracted to him? Prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. In fact, he was, he was made fun of by the Pharisees because he is a friend of sinners. Well, praise the Lord, we ought to be friends of sinners. Sinners don't like us because we're self-righteous and legalistic, and we make them feel uncomfortable when they come into the house of God. We look at them because they don't look like us. We don't, wanna, we don't want them here. No, we want other church folks That's not church growth. What are we doing as a church? What are you doing as a church to reach out to people who are lost and dying and going to hell? Who would not darken that back door of that church if their life depended on it? What are you doing to reach out to them? That's my question to you this morning. And if you are involved in that kind of outreach and evangelism, then I will have to make the case for apologetics. You will already see it. And I want to go say, well, you know, you should really learn how to defend the faith. Because if you are actually doing evangelism and engaging people with the idea of the gospel and saying, you know what, Jesus loves you. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Uh, okay, uh, well, the Bible says so. Uh, no, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. I think that science is disproving the Bible. Well, what are you going to do now? If you're doing evangelism, you will see the need for apologetics. It's just, it's just the, that's, just the, that's just the truth of the matter. So, um, so the question is, does God exist? Number two, can we trust the Bible? That's the second apologetic question. And I'm, I, I don't have time to give you all the answers, but I'm telling you there's some great answers. I'm an archaeologist and apologist, so I kind of have two hats, and I can give you some really good stuff. I've, I'm loaded for bear. I'm like, I've got a sniper rifle full of, 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 a, of evidential uh, ammunition as to why we can trust the Word of God historically. But my question to you is, do you know why? Do you know why you can trust this Bible? But, and again, a lot of people will say, well, I can trust the Bible because it says it's the Word of God. Well, so does the Quran, and so does the Bhagavad Gita, and so does any other religious document. Well, how do we know this book is different than every other book? How do we, if you, if you see, uh, uh, if you go to whatever Target or whatever store, you, Walmart, if you go to Walmart, Target, and you see a, a lady, uh, some of you ladies, a Muslim lady with a headscarf on, the burqa, do y'all have those around here too? We, we do in Charlotte as well. And, and you get in a conversation, you kind of maybe have this conversation, and they, and they ask you, 
well, uh, we believe in the Quran, and, and you say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible. We, we, believe the, we believe the Bible has been corrupted. The Injil, they call it the New Testament, the Injil has been corrupted. Could you, could you give them reasons why, some reasons why this is trustworthy, why there's good reasons to believe that this is reliable? There's manuscript evidence. There are 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament alone. There are literally thousands and thousands of archaeological discoveries, Old and New Testament, that back up and affirm what the text says. So we've got good historical, we have good, good uh, archaeological evidence that the Bible is a reliable document. We can check it out. It is a very historical book. It, it claims uh, to be written by eyewitnesses. And, but the eyewitnesses are no longer alive. So we can look at manuscripts and we can look at archaeological discoveries to figure out if this book can be trusted. And archaeology has been around for about 100 years. And uh, it is, uh, so far, uh, Nelson Gluck in the 1960s made a statement. He says that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And he said that in like 1969, 70, and uh, that was 40-so years ago. And that statement is still true today. And I can, I can tell you that it's still true today. No archaeological discovery that's come out of the ground has ever refuted anything the Bible has said. And I was in Israel this summer, and those of you who were in my session earlier uh, heard evidence. We've got evidence of the destruction of the city of Ai that's written about in Joshua chapter 8. And um, if you're interested in archaeology, uh, after, uh, after we eat this afternoon, I've got some artifacts on the table from Ai. So you can look at hard evidence that the Bible is true. I mean, I've got evidence. I've got pottery. I can show you this evidence on the table uh, that the Bible happened exactly. And there's one piece of pottery. When you get over there, I don't have them labeled, but there is a piece of pottery over there that has burn marks on the top of it. And it's not a cooking pot. It's a storage pot. And the significance of it is this. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 8 that the Israelites were commanded to burn the city of Ai. And I've got a piece of pottery that's been burned by the armies of Israel. Hard evidence that it's true. It can be trusted. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Okay. So, so that's question number two. Does God exist? There's evidence scientifically. DNA. You could point to DNA. That's a big question for people. You can ask somebody, say, well, where does DNA come from? How do you explain DNA? DNA is really difficult to explain, to, for an atheist to explain. Uh, two years ago... Uh, actually, about a year and a half ago, there was a study at Harvard University, a geneticist, uh, a Ph.D. student, working with, a, with his uh, advisor, and he wanted to try to figure out um, how, much, how much information could be contained in one gram of DNA, which basically is on the tip of your little finger. So just look at your, right now, look at your tip of your little finger, and that, your little pinky, right? Not the entire nail, but that little end of your nail, unless your lady got long fingernails. But mostly, most people have a little small pinky nail. That's about one gram of DNA, okay? Anybody want to take a wild guess at how much, if you converted that into like gigabytes, how many of you got like a little flash drive? Anybody got a flash drive in here? Like a little thumb drive, you know, you flash. What is yours rated to? Eight gigabytes, okay? What is a gigabyte? What is one gig? That's like a thousand megabytes? Is that right, Don? Do you know? I don't know what a gig is. It's a billion bytes? Okay. All right, so, all right, what about a terabyte? Does anybody have a terabyte drive at home, like a hard drive that's like a terabyte? A tera, T-E-R-A-B-Y-T-E, terabyte. A terabyte is like a thousand gigabytes, right? That's a terabyte, okay? Now, you want to take a guess about how much 
information, how much complex encoding is in one gram of DNA? 700 terabytes. 700 terabytes of information contained in one gram of DNA. They made this discovery and said that they had to double-check their numbers. It didn't make sense to them. It is the most, it is the most highly organized biological machinery encoding mechanism ever, ever discovered in the universe. And it's just one gram, and your, your body contains literally billions of strands of DNA. So it's sort, it's sort of like, it's, sort of like uh, it's not just information, it's complex. It's like how to build your heart, how to build your lungs encoded in, in a genetic code in your DNA. That's amazing. That is very difficult to explain in a naturalistic worldview. We are Christians. We believe that there is a God. There's a better explanation for that DNA that there's a God that made it, that created it, a designer. So that's, that's evidence that God exists. That's hard evidence, and we need to learn these kinds of evidences. So does God exist? And the number two is, can we trust the Bible? We looked at that. The last question is this, who was Jesus? In fact, Jesus even asked that. He said, who do men say that I am? And, so, and Peter said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say... He said, well, who do you say that I am? He said, I say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And the question that people need to struggle with is this, who was Jesus? Did he, and a related question that really is connected to that question is this, did Jesus rise from the dead? Who was Jesus? Did he rise from the dead? Yes or no? We believe that he did rise from the dead. And what do we learn about that? We learn about that in this book. We learn about that in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that Jesus is risen from the dead. So that means that if we, if we don't know why we can trust this, then we can't really make the case that Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, we could say, well, I know Jesus is alive uh, from the dead because he's living in my heart. And that's great. Not trying, to, not trying to downplay personal experience or the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He does. But your testimony uh, is, is part of your, of your witness. But there's also evidence that Jesus really is who he said he was and that he's risen from the dead. Uh, and there's all kinds of evidence. In our book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we give six E, we call the six E, actually I think there's ten of them, but uh, usually in presentation we give six E's as to why we think the New Testament writers are telling the truth about Jesus. Uh, embarrassing testimony, uh, excruciating testimony, eyewitness testimony, all kinds of different, the different E's that bear witness that the New Testament writers were telling the truth about Jesus. Let me just give you one of them, and that is uh, excruciating testimony. All of the apostles, except John, who wrote Revelation, John the Beloved, all of them, and of course Judas, who hung himself, all of them went to their deaths believing that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, if they're making something up, if they're inventing this, why would they die for it? I mean, you would think one of them would say, you know what, no, nah, we just made it up. He's not, really, he's not really risen. We stole the body. You would think one of them would break the story, but every single one of them went to their deaths, many of their deaths, excruciating deaths, believing that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And then think about James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in New York. This is a wild story. They asked me to be on this documentary on CNN. 
And uh, it's, I, I have a really small part, so if you watch next year, Easter of 2015, you'll see me in a new documentary on, uh, it's called The Jesus Code. And uh, they asked me about James. And I thought, all right, good. Can I say what I want to say about James? They said, oh, yeah, by all means, tell us about James. And I'm like, great, thank you. Well, this is what I said about James on the film. I said, you know, if you think about James, he really is an interesting character. You know, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Of course, Catholics believe he wasn't the full brother of Jesus. But Protestants, we believe that Mary had other children after Jesus was born. So he would have been the half-brother of Jesus. And... During Jesus' lifetime, during, when Jesus was alive, James was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, there are a couple of occasions in the Gospels where James, along with the family, they try to get Jesus like, this is my brother, he thinks he's the son of God, you know, he thinks he's God. You know, Jesus, you need to come home because uh, you're scaring these people. You know, I'm, I'm serious, that's what the text says. It says in Mark, I forgot the passage, it says that his mother and brothers thought he was beside himself. And, and by the way, that's another of the uh, uh, I w- that's one of the earmarks of authenticity. Why would you include embarrassing things in the Gospels if they were not true? His own family thought he was his crazy, and yet at the at the resurrection, James turns as a one eighty and becomes a follower of his brother, and becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The only explanation for James is that he saw the resurrection. Jesus is risen. He is risen from the dead. He's risen indeed. But this is a historical question. And it's a question that we can look at the evidence in the Bible to try to figure out whether or not it happened. So here are the three questions. Does God exist? Is there a God? That's fundamental. Because a lot of issues flow from that question. Don't overlook that question. Does God exist? Number two, can we trust this book? What evidence do we have that we can trust this book? We've got manuscripts. We have archaeology. We have church fathers. We have all kinds of extra-biblical evidence. We have Josephus, a Roman historian, who basically said exactly what the Bible said about Jesus. I mean, they, he didn't believe in Jesus, but he said, well, yeah, there, there was a man, a rabbi named Jesus. He had disciples. His disciples claimed that he rose again. He did miracles. It essentially affirms the minimal, what Gary Habermas calls the minimal facts about the life of Jesus. Uh, one, one interesting archaeological discovery that was found in Nazareth in, gosh, I can't remember when this was, the discovery. I want to say it was in, I'm just going to throw out here, 1994. 1994. It's called the um, Nazareth Inscription. And essentially it was during the reign of Claudius. And it was found in Nazareth. And it's Greek. It's written in Greek. And this is what it says. It was found in Nazareth, which is where Jesus is from. Now, Claudius reigned about 30 or 40 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. And we find a Roman inscription prohibiting the stealing of bodies from graves under the penalty of death. Now, why... Would the Romans, we, we don't find this inscription anywhere else in the Roman world except in Nazareth. Why would they, Brother Jeremy, have an inscription prohibiting the stealing of bodies unless bodies had disappeared and some rabble came out of that? What's the one thing that that says that affirms? Whether or not it's true or not, it affirms the, the body wasn't there. The body wasn't there. Now, that wasn't talking necessarily about Jesus' resurrection, but the fact that it was in Nazareth, and the fact that it prohibits the stealing of bodies under the penalty of death. Now, what, now, 
When you stole stuff out of a grave, you want to get gold and loot. Why would you get a body? Why would that make sense? And why would the Romans prohibit that under the penalty of death? It doesn't make any sense. And the archaeologists that I've studied, and I agree with them, believe that this is a direct reference to the disciples of Jesus. The fact that Christianity was beginning to spread in the Roman Empire and that there was a message about a Messiah who had been risen from the dead, and they put this inscription in his own hometown, where his family was from, in Nazareth. It makes perfect sense. Then it, it, we found in 1992, we found Pontius Pilate inscription in Caesarea, and then we also have discovered the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest that presided over the trial of Jesus. We have his bones. And you say, well, Ted, how do you know that? Because his name is on the coffin. It says, Joseph ben Caiaphas. We say, well, how do you know it's the same Joseph? Well, because of where it was found in Jerusalem, it was found in the ossuary. We know the ossuaries were used in the first century. And Josephus mentions the name. Even the New Testament doesn't mention the, the whole name of Caiaphas, but Josephus does. And it says, the high priest presiding over the trial of Jesus was Joseph ben Caiaphas. That's what Josephus says. So, folks, there's good evidence that this is, this is true. This really happened. History backs this up. And the last question is the question of Jesus. Well, let me, let me just close with this. And let me just, let me just uh, um, sort of wrap things up here. Um, I think that sometimes, let me just kind of be transparent and honest with you. And I've, I've taught apologetics for about 11 years in, in Old Testament. And uh, I've been working for cross-examined for two years now. Uh, I've been a pastor. I've been a seminary professor. And let me just say, sometimes I think that we apologists, and I'm one of them, Sometimes in our zeal and in our enthusiasm, we sort of overstate the case for apologetics as if apologetics itself is going to win the day. And uh, just take that with a grain of salt. You know, we, it is important. It's not that it's not important. It's not either your witness or apologetics. It's both. It's both apologetics. You've got to learn apologetics. And you also have to live a Christ-like life. And the reason why I say that is this. In William Lane Craig, who is one of the top Christian philosophers in the country. I think everybody agree with that. Great debater. He wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. And he, he gives all this evidence, all this great apologetic evidence for God's existence and Jesus and the resurrection. And it's all great stuff. But at the very end of the book, do you know what the name of the chapter is? The name of the chapter is this. The greatest apologetic. And you know what the greatest apologetic is? You. You are the greatest apologetic. He says, listen, if your life doesn't match your message, people will not listen to what you have to say. So it's great to learn apologetics, and we should learn apologetics. But keep in mind, as we learn apologetics, we have to encapsulate it in a life that glorifies God, that glorifies Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bowl. But instead they place it high in the house that everyone may see its light. He said, in like manner, so shine your light among men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we want to do. We want to glorify our Father. So live the kind of life where people ask questions. And when they ask questions, then we are able to do as Peter says. We are able to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is within us. You say, well, what, Pastor Jeremy, why, why are you so different? Why do you seem to be always like nothing really gets you down? You know, um, what, What's different about you? Well, 
Do you, he, he should be able to give me a reason why he is a Christian. And we, all of us should, not just Pastor Jeremy, but all of us should know why we believe what we believe. So the bottom line is this. It's not either or. It's not, well, it's apologetics to us. It's for apologetics guys or it's for seminary guys. It's for everybody who's concerned about the culture, everybody who's concerned about the gospel, everyone who's concerned about reaching people for Christ. If you care about people knowing Jesus then you will care about apologetics. And by the way, let me just add this to that. It's also commanded. We're commanded to defend the faith. And in, in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, he says, he says, I felt that I must urge you to contend for the faith once and for all and trust it to the saints. We have been, if you think about this, this is amazing. If you think about where we are today, we are in the year 2014 in North Carolina this day. And through the centuries... The gospel of Jesus Christ, John 3.16, other passages, that has been passed down the generations to us. And the saints that have been on before us, many of them have died for their faith. They have defended the faith. They have presented the gospel, defended the faith. And now that gospel has been passed on to us. I know it's football season, so I know what you're thinking about. The ball is now passed on to us. Now, it's it. now we've got the ball. What are we going to do with it? Defend the faith, once and for all, entrusted to the saints. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Lord, your word is indeed pure, and it is perfect. And your word cleanses us, and it tells us how to know Jesus, and it tells us how to have eternal life. And Father, I thank you so much that you sent Christ to this world in time and space He really did live 2,000 years ago. And His acts and His deeds are recorded in a book. We thank You for Your Word that You have preserved for us down through the centuries, dear God. You have given us a reliable document that tells us about how to know Jesus and how to be saved. And Father, my prayer to You, my prayer this morning is that there's someone here, Lord, who has never trusted in Christ and believed in Him as their Savior. I pray, dear God, that they would indeed examine the evidence for themselves to look at the Word and what it says, that Jesus is who He said He was, and that He is risen from the dead. And as Your Word says in Isaiah, You are the Savior, and apart from You, there is no Savior. There is no Savior, there's no way to be saved apart from Jesus. And I pray, dear God, there's one here this morning who's never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray to your God that you would, Lord, speak to them now, Father, through your Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've been already working uh, on them throughout these past few days and weeks and months, dear God. Also pray, Lord, for those of us who are here, in here this morning, who, Lord, we are your children and we are your uh, church. And we know you, Lord, and we have been with you for some time. But, Lord, we have... In the past few days or months or maybe even years, Lord, we have become slack and callous in our care for the lost. My prayer this morning, your God, is you would break our hearts, Lord, and give us a burden for the lost. Give us a burden for truth, dear God, that we might learn it, that we might defend it, that we might present it with our life and with our words and with our deeds, dear God. Use us in your hands, Father, for your glory. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength. For this is the greatest commandment. 
And the second one is like it, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, dear God. For in these two commands are summed all the law and the prophets. Lord, many of us have become intellectually lazy, and we want other people to do the work that we should be doing. I pray, dear God, that you would rouse up and stir up amongst your people here, dear God, the desire to learn how to defend the faith, that we might go out and share the gospel in this lost and dying world. I pray, Father, your protection over Pastor Jeremy. I pray that you would surround him and use him in a mighty way, Father, in this church and in this community, dear God. May Community Baptist Church, Lord, be a lighthouse in this community for truth, that it would defend the gospel, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would increase the numbers here, Father, not just for this number's sake, dear God, but so that your kingdom would be filled. Help us, dear God, to go out into the highways and byways and compel the lost to come in. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. Give us strength and go before us and fight the battle for us, Lord, that we might follow you. We ask these things in Christ's holy and strong name. And all God's people said, Amen. Pastor Jeremy.